Well, I want to welcome everyone to Cato. I am Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies. I will be moderating the second panel, but I did want to welcome you. Uh, we will also be building in a couple of breaks between the panels for you to check your phones, return your calls, water, coffee, and such. So with that, I want to turn it over to my colleague, Louise Bennett. So to echo uh, Mark, uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. We're very happy to have you uh, here today to commemorate or perhaps commiserate, depending on your viewpoint, on the third uh, anniversary of Dodd-Frank. Um, my name is Louise Bennett. I'm the Associate Director of Financial Regulatory Studies here at the Cato Institute. Uh, I've been working on Dodd-Frank issues, uh, first in private practice and now here since, since its inception. Um, just to give you sort of an outline, this panel is going to be uh, structured as a discussion. So we've got a few topics to cover. At the end, I'm going to give each of the panelists a chance to uh, give their thoughts on, on anything they want, Dodd-Frank, too big to fail, whatever. Um, and then, as Mark noted, we, uh, we, we, we will have a 15 or 20 minute break at the end. I will also open it up to questions at the end. So if you have any, um, any questions, please hold it till then. Uh, let me begin by introducing our panelists. Uh, we do have detailed uh, speaker biographies outside, so I'll keep it brief. But to my right is Jeremiah Norton. Uh, Jeremiah is a member of the Board of Directors of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. He was a Deputy Assistant Secretary at the U.S. Treasury during the uh, 2008 financial crisis, so he's um, got a lot of experience in the, t in the issues we're talking about today. Um, on the far left, we have uh, Jim Donnellan. He's the Vice President for Government and Industry Affairs at MetLife. MetLife is, of course, one of the United States' largest insurers. And uh, I think last week had the uh, good fortune or bad fortune of being uh, designated a GSI, which is a globally systemically important insurer. So we'll be discussing that today. And then uh, to his uh, right is Tony Fratto, who is a partner at Hamilton Place Strategies, uh, which is a media and communications firm. Uh, and he is the former deputy assistant to the president and deputy press secretary uh, in the Bush White House. So we're very happy to have all the panelists here today. And thank you to everyone who's joining us, um, both here and uh, online. So I guess our topic for the panel is, did Dodd-Frank end too big to fail, or has it created new too big to fail institutions? But before we get there, I sort of want to take a 50,000 foot view of, of this issue. And I'd, if you look at the fact pattern in 2008, so we had a number of uh, thrifts uh, and, and commercial banks failing. We had WAMU, Wachovia, IndyMac. We had a lot of investment banks getting into trouble. Bear Stearns, obviously Lehman, Merrill Lynch. Um, we had one large global bank, Citibank, that was in trouble. Uh, we saw hundreds of community banks failing. We had AIG. We had Fannie and Freddie. This question of whether an individual institution is, can be too big to fail, you know, the, the failure of an individual institution is a problem. Is that really the right way to think about this topic? So put differently, does too big to fail really exist or was this just a, a catchphrase uh, circa 2008? And I will start with Tony. Uh, thanks, Louise. Thanks for having, um, having me here today and having this group here. Um, 
Well, actually, you know, in setting that that context, I was thinking to myself that that's you know that's really where everybody sort of starts the starts that discussion of uh, of the of the crisis in two thousand eight. And of course, it actually starts well back into two thousand seven, right? Mm -hmm. With um, those were all U.S. institutions that you mentioned, um, but you know, really, it was a it was a global um, banking crisis, and not just a U.S. banking crisis. So you could have talked about uh, you know BNP Paribas and Northern Rock and ABM Amro and lots of other um, global institutions as well. And, um, but you know, what intrigued me a lot about this, about the, um, the topic for discussion today, and as you introduced it on Too Big to Fail, is that I keep finding myself in the peculiar position of having to defend Dodd-Frank <laughs> in terms of what it, you know, what it will do and what it won't, won't do in terms of uh, um, ending, uh, ending Too Big to Fail. And we, we can get a lot more uh, depth on that, on why I think, on what it, I think it does and and doesn't do. Um, but as we go back to that that period of time, and in particular, because we are largely, I think, talking about the United States, um, you know, did we have a, uh, you know, did we have too big to fail, or did we have, uh, you know, systemic, you know, systemic failures that that uh, presented too big to fail problems? I think we, we you know, we we had both. Uh, but the biggest uh, problem we had at that time was uh, a, a, just a real lack of knowledge and 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 the fear of the un, uh, unknown. And that was certainly the case in March of uh, of 2008 when uh, authorities were trying to determine what to do with um, with Bear Stearns and what the implications would be of Bear Stearns. There was a, a great deal of uh, of unknown, and so in in retrospect. Um, you know what I what I would say, and remember those days very very clearly, is that you know looking back, I don't think we I don't think Bear Stearns was too big to fail. I think to, to, I think uh, we, the, we could have um, quite easily managed the failure um, of uh, of Bear Stearns. We managed it by parceling uh, parceling it out with some you know with some creditor losses to uh, to JP Morgan but we could have handled it as a as a true you know bankruptcy and 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 real uh, you know we could put it through bankruptcy and, and allowed it to fail in a tr more traditional way um, but we but we didn't know what we didn't know and that was frightening for uh, for authorities um, everywhere and had lots of knock-on consequences for um, events through the rest of 2008 so I, I like thinking about it more in that period because I think when you think about um, the you know the late summer and fall of 2008, we were already in the middle of a, a real deep systemic crisis before we allowed uh, Lehman Brothers to fail, and so I think the circumstances were were, were very different. So you have to go earlier. Yeah. Uh, well, first, thanks for having me, and it's good to be with Tony and Jim on the panel. And just a reminder that my remarks are my own and not necessarily those of the FDIC. Uh, <clears throat> I think this topic is really hard to crystallize in one segment of a panel or a whole panel. There's a lot of work and analysis that's been done and is being done on sort of what is too big to fail and does it exist? And if so, how vast is it? And Tony and I were, were both there and participants in 2008, and I guess the way I approach the issue today is that it, 2008 happened, and there was a massive amount of intervention in the U.S. financial system and in the global financial system. So, as opposed to elaborating on why I think we 
got to 2008 and I have views on that and what decisions may or may or may not have been the right ones, I sort of think about it as we are where we are and what do we do about it? And I think it's hard to uh, look at the assistance that was put into place and then not have some sort of policy response. And that sort of gets us to well, we we have Dodd-Frank and we have all the things that go along with that and we have the existing powers that are in place outside of Dodd-Frank, which includes things like capital rules and normal supervision. So uh, that's sort of the way I look at the debate today. I think, I think I maybe enjoy a little different perspective having been in the private sector and living the crisis from that point of view. And my views hopefully are my views and are reflective of MetLife's views or otherwise I won't be back. But the I think there is a lot of focus on size and big failures can be ugly, but I think Dodd-Frank did in spirit get it right that the concept of too big to fail is not just about size, but is about interconnectedness, substitutability, and some other factors that really contribute to that systemic danger that we're all concerned about. And MetLife does support uh, appropriate regulation for true systemic risk. I mean, having lived through the financial crisis, it was unpleasant for everyone, and there was a lot of uncertainty, as my colleagues have mentioned. So no one had a crystal ball. And as Jeremiah noted, the policy response being the likes of Dodd-Frank and uh, a lot of implementing regulation to follow, some of which is still in the works, uh, needs to remain true to that spirit of really only correcting for true systemic risk. So we're uh, working our way through that as a, a company that is being scrutinized as to whether or not uh, it should be designated as a non-bank SIFI. Okay, I think we can come back. I'll, I'll come back to the, the, the question of systemic risk more generally um, a little later because I think that's something that's very important to talk about in, in connection with this topic. But in the meantime, let's just link this back to Dodd-Frank. So assuming, just taken, uh, ignoring a lot of what we've just said, assuming that the failure of an individual institution does pose some systemic risk, whether it just be operational or contagious or, as you said, interconnectedness, um, let's talk about how Dodd-Frank purports to address the issue. So, because it seems to me that there's a little bit of, an, of a tension in the act, and, and the tension is on one hand we've got, you know, Title II, Title I that's aimed at ending this idea that a large institution can't fail, so we've now put in, in procedures in place to deal with that. But then the rest of the act seems to be micromanaging the organizations away from failure. So, and, and that seems a little bit of a contradiction to me. Um, so maybe you want to address that. Uh, well, I would agree that there are some cross currents in Dodd-Frank, uh, almost everywhere you look. And uh, I think that is not too big of a surprise to me personally. You have a huge event <laughs> and then Congress tries to come together in one session and, and work to address those issues. So uh, right now we have... Uh, as you said, you know, Title One, uh, and I'm focused more on the bank supervision side, but you know, Title One, uh, you have uh, prudential enhancements and you have uh, bankruptcy 
provisions and there are Title II authorities uh, also having to deal with resolution. Uh, but I, I do think that there is a good case that the architecture of our system should be better, both from the government side and on the financial services side. And so, so that seems appropriate that those issues are on the table, whether we got them all right, that's I think very debatable. Then I think there's a very good argument that supervision should have been better. I'm not sure a lot of the powers are, that are new were necessary. I think yeah. the supervisors had a lot of authority, uh, probably not all that they would have liked, but a lot of authority. And uh, and then what other changes have been made? Uh, you're right. Some of them are very specific. You know, like let's have businesses do certain things or not allow them to do certain things. Um, and that's a bit more prescriptive than probably I would do it if I were writing the legislation myself. But that's that's not the choice we all get. So. Okay. Yeah. Jim. Yeah. So. Um, Look, I, I largely, I largely agree with, um, with with Jeremiah on this, and uh, I know we're, we're probably going to disagree. It pains me. We're going to disagree on some other things. I hate disagreeing with Jeremiah because he's <laughs> so smart. And um, but you know, uh, on on the the uh, the simplicity of uh, it, it, there's nothing simple about Dodd Frank, right? It is obviously incredibly uh, complex, and I would have preferred to have seen um, uh, you know much more simple construct uh, for Dodd-Frank that focuses just on, on some you know, very simple, broad, um, understandable um, metrics like, you know, just simply like capital liquidity, transparency, um, and, um, and, and cleaning up the, the oversight, uh, uh, the, the supervisory structure of, of financial institutions. And I think we could have gone a lot, lot further. And, you know, I, I remind people back when, um, you know when we were when uh, we were debating Dodd Frank and you know and uh, everybody we, we knew a few things right we knew that um, uh, Americans wanted us wanted the uh, government to pass right wanted Congress to pass Dodd Frank no one could tell you anything that Dodd Frank did right which is really a failure of of uh, policy making and legislating right I mean that is we should not be passing legislation on such a large part of the, um, um, of our, uh, the affecting such a huge swath of our economy where Americans really don't know anything about what the legislation does because it's so, uh, so complicated. And so that's, a, so that's a failure. I also think it's a failure just in terms of policy design. You know, I mean, simple is usually, usually better, even as these are really you know, uh, complex institutions operating in a really large complex world and um, and so I don't want us to be afraid of complexity but I do think that oversight is, you know usually some simple constructs are better so I wouldn't I don't like the prescriptive a lot of the prescriptive nature of it I think we've gotten it gotten it really wrong in some areas in particular um, on um, on Volcker rule that said um, I do think that uh, the system is undeniably safer because of uh, because of uh, the, the reforms in uh, in, in Dodd Frank, um, 
and it's going to it, it will force feed uh, the system to to do uh, to be uh, to be safer, and it does generally address some of those key areas that I mentioned: transparency, liquidity, uh, and uh, and the capital structure of institutions. Um, but where I where I differ with a lot of uh, the critics of of Dodd Frank on both the left and the right, I think, is that I actually think it's 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 more likely to you know the the the, um, the you know resolution authority. I think. Uh, is more likely to be used than not. It has introduced a new kind of not not benefit to institutions, but you know risk to to institutions. And I think if you go back, so you know we could always like sort of war game the past on these things and ask like, what would have happened if. Um, and I could I could argue that we may not have been in the same in the same situation, uh, the same exact situation had we had Dodd Frank in place at the time. Um, but I do think if you had a, 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 uh, a single um, sick institution, a weak institution, um, government is far more likely uh, under a Dodd-Frank regime to go in and seize that institution and, um, uh, and use the authority it's granted today than, uh, than it would ever could have in the past. Um, but I actually think that adds volatility. It doesn't uh, reduce volatility. Uh, it, it adds a, a different level of risk to institutions, and it ha and it threatens to um, to you know push a sick um, uh, you know institution you know down the hill, right? I mean, it, it's, it, rather than lifting it lifting it up, I think it actually forces the you know private you know private investors to to flee. Uh, what might otherwise be a salvageable institution in the private sector because of this threat of, um, of uh, official authorities coming in and seizing it. So I, I think there's, as I reflect on it, there's nothing that would generate legislation like a crisis. So to the point that my colleagues have raised, I mean, Dodd-Frank, as a statute provides a lot of authority within federal regulators to do a lot of different things, I think the balance is what has become important, the balance in terms of not overreaching, perhaps through designations of firms that don't need to be designated as systemic, uh, whether you're talking about an insurer or otherwise, uh, there's certainly differing opinions. Uh, for instance, AIG is is welcoming its designation as a, a, a CIFI, non-bank CIFI, and MetLife feels differently. We don't feel that the uh, insurance industry caused the crisis. Uh, designations is one example. Uh, you know, there are a lot of rules being written, and the balance that's achieved there, you know, the Volcker rule generated, you know, perhaps closer to 2,000 comments than not. And a lot depends on how those rules uh, are adopted in final form in terms of uh, not going overboard, not uh, doing too much in the way of regulation unnecessarily. So uh, I think uh, a number of the things that uh, were mentioned, liquidity, uh, otherwise, are reflective of what the, for instance, the Federal Reserve's evolving regulatory regime 
I think all the federal regulators look at uh, the environment and uh, modify their regulatory regime to reflect uh, changes in the environment. So, you know, corporate governance uh, and the like have been a source of focus for the Federal Reserve for some time. So some of it, I think, is natural uh, evolution that got caught in codification, not necessarily a, a bad thing, but it didn't necessarily need to be prescribed. I think some of it the Federal Reserve would have done. Certainly in other areas, new authorities were needed. And again, I, I think there's a balance that we need to achieve. So, um, yeah, it sort of reminds me of, uh, I think, Rahm Emanuel, when after the, the Obama administration came into power, he said, you can never let a good crisis go to waste. And I think we definitely see that a little bit with Dodd-Frank. But let's just, just to unpack a little bit about what we've been discussing um, on the issue of Title II, the Orderly Liquidation Authority. Um, I think one of the difficulties with creating a, you know, a credible uh, resolution regime. And what I mean by credible is one that will actually be used, because I think Dodd-Frank still has a lot of discretion built in. And, you know, the, the standard to invoke OLA, I think when, when it initially started, people were concerned, oh, well, the government will be taking over companies. But actually, if you look at the statute, the standard to invoke it is pretty high. I mean, it's, it's a pretty high bar. So given that the Act makes it quite difficult to invoke, um, how can we be certain that it will be ever, you know, ever be used? And I, so, because I think a lot of a lot of the criticism around Title II is partly that issue. And then, if we adopt, you know, your, the the FDIC has obviously come up with a single point of entry um, resolution. If we adopt that under, could we adopt that under a traditional bankruptcy framework? Wouldn't that be more more credible? Um, so, I guess I can start with you, Jeremiah. Okay. Uh, one of the things I don't like about the discussion around resolution is that there's so much attention on Title II. And I like to go back and look at the statute and then look at the way, in, in my view, markets should work. And bankruptcy is the first part of resolution in the statute. It's in Title I. Uh, firms that are in the category of $50 billion or greater or designated uh, by the FSOC have to submit a resolution plan, also known as living wills. And the law is pretty clear that you have to have either a credible plan or ha uh, and you have to be uh, resolvable in an orderly manner under our bankruptcy laws. And the Federal Reserve and the FDIC jointly make that determination, and there's an annual filing. So I think that we need to spend a lot more time focusing on Title I and resolution under bankruptcy and to make that work. Uh, I think if we get to a place where we're using Title II and the OLA and the Orderly Liquidation Authority, or, which has this Orderly Liquidation Fund, um, that that is a very suboptimal place uh, with regard to where we probably are in the markets, where firms are in terms of making themselves resolvable uh, with policymakers and uh, carrying out the statute as they're supposed to. So uh, I, I hope that the discussion, broadly speaking, focuses more on Title I than it does Title II. Now, to your question, can we make uh, a single point of entry strategy work? 
under a bankruptcy regime. I think that... Sorry, I should probably just, just for our audience members who are not aware of what, what we're, we're discussing, um, the single point of entry uh, approach is a, is a, is a, is a I guess a new strategy that the FDIC has come up with for um, for for dealing with with uh, the failure of a large sort of multifunctional organisation that would be traditionally resolved under a lot of different types of bankruptcy regimes. So traditionally, I think you've had broker dealers go into a CIPIC proceeding. You've had the commercial banks being resolved by the FDIC. So this would instead look at the holding company, and I think the uh, the approach is to is to try and get credit, you know, bondholders and shareholders to take the hit before. You, um, you, you, you give some financial assistance to the company, so that that's what we're discussing here. But sorry, yeah, and and I don't think that uh, in that respect it's different than bankruptcy. Where it is different a little bit is that there's a government fund. Right. Uh, so if you think of typical bankruptcy, usually needing some financing vehicle, uh, i.e., dip financing, this is akin to that for very large. Uh, financial institutions. Uh, so there's there's certainly a, a special status when you have a government fund, as is called for under Title II, to help finance, um, finance a bankruptcy. Now, can you make that work, uh, uh, to your question, under a bankruptcy, bankruptcy regime? I think a lot of the issues that are in place with bankruptcy are also in place in a in a resolution re regime. You have two that stand out in my mind. One is that our legal authorities, whether it's a bankruptcy uh, regime or a government resolution regime, they stop at the water's edge. So to the extent you have big firms doing business overseas and their contracts are written in, in foreign law, that's an issue you have to deal with in either path. Uh, and then the financing mechanism for a bankruptcy is a key question. How will a firm fund itself uh, in, a, in a sort of a new co uh, state, in, in a bankruptcy state? Uh, will there be private sector funding or not? And I think those two key issues are things that need to be addressed in, in Title I or if you get to Title II. Okay. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I just, um, I, I wish there was a lot more focus on uh, on, on Title One, as well, and um, look, I mean, there's a there's a lot of uh, there's always been a lot of misinterpretation about, you know, about the concept of dip financing, right? And just at its very, at its very, uh, its core, you know, you have a lot a lot of my friends on the Hill, who will say, you know, what we should treat a you know bank, um, a uh, you know bank bankruptcy just like any other bankruptcy, and let the private sector come in and provide. You know, dip financing, except that when any other industry, a firm in any other industry experiences a failure, there is the financial sector to come in and provide dip financing. When the failure is in the financial sector and credit is uh, is constrained, right, and people are are, are retrenching uh, in the financial sector, then uh, dip financing becomes really uh, really scarce. So that is a role for. For government uh, to come in, otherwise, it's I think fundamentally no different at all than than the way it would be handled in um, uh, in the private sector, and that's really the way we ought to be uh, thinking about how to deal with um, how to deal with um, uh, the failure of, of you know firms of all sizes. 
Jim, you probably would like less attention on Title I, but I'll let you. <laughs> no, uh, the insurance industry, uh, when you look at it and study it and look at the historic failures that it has experienced, uh, they're far fewer than exist in the, in the banking sector. And we believe that's a, a direct result of, of the business model that we participate in, in that we have longer-term liabilities and invest longer-term assets in, in longer-term assets. So we see it as it's very hard to conceive of a run on an insurer. And uh, often when insurers do fail, the, the gap between uh, assets and liabilities are pretty small, and there is a maybe 10 to 15 percent. Uh, and the state guarantee fund mechanism comes into play to uh, protect policyholders to, to that degree. And uh, there needs to be fur further conversation and attention paid to uh, that mechanism and, and how a living will would actually work for uh, an insurance company. But one, one point Jeremy made, I hope, or Jeremiah made, and I hope we can get it into it also, though. But he, he did expose, I think, the the, the biggest you know, the biggest flaw in regula in in, uh, in regulation is think is how we do think about uh, regulation and supervision globally. That is that that's that is the um, um, for all the attention to you know capital and leverage and a lot of the things that that, are, that occupy our time and and rhetoric right now. That's the biggest. Um, um, hole that needs to be is uh, filled is, is dealing with cross-border uh, issues. Okay, would you like to follow up on? Uh, well, I, I think it's a real issue and people, I think in the official sector and in the private sector are spending a great deal of time thinking through how business is done across border and where they're set up and under what legal regimes and you know, we're going through a lot of change in the U.S. and uh, you know, there's a firm that puts out uh, a tracker, I think there are 398 rules under their scorecard that Dodd-Frank requires, and, you know, we're somewhere in the midst of that process, uh, you know, three years. All the hard th ones are still to come. Three, yeah. three years and a day after passage, uh, but that's going on, I think Tony alluded to earlier, uh, maybe as we were walking up the stairs, it, that's going on across the globe. You've got the EU going through a tremendous amount of change. The UK is going through uh, their own process, and they're also attached to what's going on in the EU. Yeah. Uh, a lot of uh, countries in Asia are watching uh, and deciding what reforms they should make or go along with or not go along with. And in the meantime, commerce is continuing and having to adjust to the policy apparatus that's in force and, and changing. So that is key. Uh, resolution in any form is very dependent upon the, the legal frameworks that are in place. And we can't, by uh, some proclamation in the U.S., just declare that everybody adopt to financial contracts as uh, a couple of regulators want if they're not <laughs> written uh, under under U.S. law. And, and so a lot of conversations are going on, a lot of work's being done, but it is a, a key step towards making progress. Okay, um, I guess at, at Jim's point also segues a little bit into the next um, area I want to I want to discuss, which is sort of systemic risk more generally and specifically on the non-bank side. 
Um, so we know that obviously traditional banking, whether commercial or investment, is systemic because you know of its central role in the creation of, of debt. Um, and so today, so far, we've discussed mostly bank-related stuff, but obviously Dodd-Frank gives the um, Financial Stability Oversight Council, the FSOC, um, an enormous amount of discretion to designate non-bank firms as systemic as well. Um, and and the, the, I have a couple of questions on this, but the, the first one is, is this just not a new way of creating too-big-to-fail organizations, you know? Is, 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 is when you call an, an organization, you know, systemic, which is obviously the, is that not just saying, well, this organization is too big to fail, and what are the implications of that? You're looking at me for to start. <laughs> okay. Uh, look, no, I, I, I think personally it's objectionable to me and how I think about markets that any firm should be too big to fail, whether it's called that or not. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to see a system where, where market participants determine what works. And uh, that being said, we had a lot of actions by government in 2008, so the safety net was expanded markedly, and we have to deal with that in some form. I'm not sure that calling people a name is the best way to, to address that, but that doesn't mean that actions don't need to be taken. And so, look, I'm not a member of the FSOC. Uh, they've designated- I'm sure we wish you were, but- <laughs> no, I'm not sure. They've, uh, Tony and I spent time with the, the President's Working Group in Financial Markets, which was a, a bit of a precursor. And yeah. uh, I'm, I think that a formal FSOC might have trouble uh, fulfilling its mission. It's, it's gonna be a hard task for them. But nonetheless, they feel like they have to carry out their statutory duty. They go through a process, they name a firm, and a regulatory regime comes and follows that if, if something is designated. Uh, I think it's too early to tell. I mean, personally, I'd, I'd rather not have a big naming uh, exercise, but uh, to be fair, we're very new into this process, so it's hard for me to conclude that it won't work, but it certainly does present a risk that if you call something too big to fail or systemically important, that market actors will say the government and the 15 members of import in Washington decided that this firm is systemically important to the United States, so maybe I will become a creditor and, and take that into account, and that can have effects that we may not like down the road. So I, I think there are a lot of risks involved in that, um, but it's a, a tough policy choice set given what's happened in the last five years. Jim, would you like to? You're a, you've obviously been uh, directly directly um, involved in this, and, and, and it seems to me we're treating insurers and, and potentially down the road, I think, in, you know, hedge funds, private equity firms, and so on, a lot like banks. And it's not, it's not clear to me that bank supervision has, has been all that successful. So would you? Sure. Uh, we, we don't believe we're too big to fail, and we don't want any advantage that might come from being too big to fail. Uh, we actually think it would be disadvantageous, you know, just 
to rewind for a moment, uh, MetLife actually was a bank holding company and decided to shed to sell its bank. And uh, part of the reason for that was a, a bank-centric regime didn't work well when 98% of what we did was the business of insurance and 2% was the business of banking. So to your point, uh, if designation leads to a bank-centric uh, regulatory regime, that would be highly problematic, particularly in the area of capital rules, we think that it would be harmful to uh, the availability and affordability of insurance products, not just those that MetLife offers, but the marketplace more generally. Uh, we asked Oliver Wyman, a consulting firm, to study the issue, and they believe that just the annual consumer cost to living with a, an unmodified Basel III capital regime could be between 5 and $8 billion more per year. So they're really uh, nuts and bolts, dollars, uh, consequences to those decisions. Now, I, I don't believe the Fed will move forward with an unmodified Basel III capital set, but it is important that the regime that is put in place should ensure uh, be designated or otherwise receive a, a bank capital standards be appropriate to the business of insurance, which is fundamentally different than the business of banking. I have, um, uh, I mean, uh, Jim is not a, a client, but I have other clients in the insurance industry. I, I should say, it's probably prefaced by saying that uh, Hamilton Place Strategies has clients throughout the, the entire Don't feel bad. financial sector. <laughs> and, um, uh, including including insurer, including insurers and uh, and big banks and other sized banks and hedge funds and private equity. So we're, we're kind of all over it, and I don't think that there's any real uniform um, uniformity of views among all of our clients on some of these on some of these questions. Um, but if there is uniformity of views on one of them, it is that I think that the, that um, there is no advent there there is no advantage to the SIFI designation. And I've seen um, really no empirical evidence to, uh, to to lead me to believe that there is, you know, whether it's a, you know in the form of a you know cost of funding uh, advantage or uh, or anything else uh, to being designated a, a CIFI. And I do not believe that it um, creates a too big to fail, you know, a, a category of, of entity. I think it's I think the 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 concept of too big to fail is really. Is really misunderstood. Um, I think it. Uh, none of our, you know, a lot of our uh, ideas of, of too big to fail today, that or that or that that show up in sort of common uh, discussion of too big to fail, would have included, you know, banks like Continental Illinois or, um, you know, may, or, or long-term capital management. Um, you know, I had the privilege of working a long time with Peter Fisher, who was at uh, New York Fed at the time, and and worked through. LTCM and and um, and just got a chance to pick his brain a lot on how on, um, on on what you know the banks and New York Fed were thinking at that time and dealing with with LTCM and and again it was just a lot of you know great uncertainty but it wasn't really about the size no right? it was about about five what five nine billion dollars it yeah. wasn't a particularly big organization and, and so um, and then just um, and just you know anecdotally. You know, I don't see anybody rushing to the SIFI line, right? No one's rushing to buy their SIFI tickets and be designated a, a SIFI and sit in that section. No one wants to sit in that section. And, um, and these are presumably the institutions that would, um, you know, that would benefit. Now, I won't say that that is 100% I, I, I um, 
cost to being uh, uh, designated a CIFI. I think there are some advantages, but um, but overall, I think it is a uh, it's a fairly significant cost to um, to these institutions. Right, and and there's always obviously a line past which point. So so you put at a disadvantage with your competitors. So it it does create some some market uh, distortions. Well, um, can I just add to that point? I think in, in our instance that example would be clear in the sense that there are only potentially a handful, maybe three insurers that face that designation or, or find themselves in that line, not having rushed to get there, but find themselves in that line. And we really believe our competitive dynamic is much different than the banking sector, meaning bank SIFIs, banks over $50 billion in size, seem to compete mostly with one another in terms of mm -hmm. the activities and, and uh, markets that they serve. You know, they're the big financing vehicles. Uh, we face competition from, you know, hundreds of insurers that are never going to reach that line, that SIFI line, because of their size. And it's very intense competition. And uh, we worry that the playing field remain level should we be designated. We think the designation would come with uh, 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 burdens that would make it unlevel and that we would face, particularly in the area of capital, if the capital requirements are not made appropriate to the business of insurance. It's not to say that they can't be rigorous. We believe strongly that there is a rigorous regime in place today, and it's at the state level. You know, insurance historically has been regulated by the states, but the states have imposed a state risk-based capital regime that does account for the difference uh, in our, our assets and liabilities in a way that's meaningful and not reflected in a, in a Basel-type banking approach. Yeah, and I, I remember one of my former colleagues always used to used to call the uh, systemic designation process the Noah's Ark approach because it seems like always the largest and most visible, or two or three largest and most visible um, firms in each industry were targeted, whether they were or, or weren't, weren't in fact um, systemic. Um, we keep discussing capital, so let's let's get onto onto that topic and. Um, because obviously the capital standards are, are included in Dodd-Frank under the heightened credentials um, in, in, in Title I. And, and um, so for those of us that have been following the discussions around uh, Basel III, and, um, uh, it seems to me that we have to be very careful with capital standards because there, you know, there's little doubt that some of the flaws in Basel II um, certainly contributed to the crisis in 2008 and the types of securities that banks were holding. Um, and you know, there, there still seems to be some concern that this might be repeated under Basel III, um, even though you know, supposedly we've been fine-tuning the risk weightings around that, and I know you've been in, in the news on, on this point. Uh, do you have any specific concerns about the systemic risk that could be created um, through it through a you know a capital regime? Uh, well, first let, let me just say because it's important that uh, the FDIC has passed an interim final rule on Basel III, and we and the other agencies are out for comment mm -hmm. on a proposed leverage ratio for. Uh, categories of firms over 700 billion in assets are potentially in, in custody and so given that we have open comment periods I want to clarify my remarks with care <laughs> um, 
I think any time you get government directing policy you that would not uh, have capital flow in the way markets would determine, you run the risk of creating uh, you know, unnecessary or perhaps systemic risk. And one of my concerns that I've laid out in, in public before we passed uh, the IFR and the proposal last week was that we have to look at what our rules are that have been in place. And the Basel Agreement is often referred to as a risk-based capital regime. And the Basel process, I think, does try to look at risk, but we need to look at what goes into the Basel process. You have almost 30 participants representing different countries coming together to agree on the document. It is not a math exercise. It is an exercise that involves math that is also a political document. Right. And it comes back to each uh, national uh, parliament, Congress, regulatory regime, and is then ratified and then uh, adjusted for each country. So the idea that, for me, that Basel agreements generally equals risk is one mm -hmm. that I have a hard time adopting. And then, of course, it's very difficult for anybody, even even acting with the best will in the world, to foresee risk down the road. I mean, it's, it, there, there's, there's a certain amount of, of art involved. I, I don't think the government generally is the best predictor of risk. Yeah. That doesn't mean the government can't predict risk or that there aren't very talented people who are focused <laughs> on it and doing a great job. But uh, it, it's, it's not an entity that's really... In, well-positioned, incentivized, and set up to anticipate risk and then adapt to those changes quickly. If you look at the Basel framework, we started in 1988, then we had Basel II pass in 2007, I think, in the United mm -hmm. States. We had Basel 2.5 pass in June of 2012, and then the latest Basel actions in uh, uh, July of this year. So I think there are not very many adaptations of Basel over a large period of time. I think if you look at the marketplace, it goes pretty quickly and adapts pretty quickly. And, and so I think we should be careful about assuming that one capital regime at a point in time is, uh, is perfection. I, I think as it relates to insurers, we've been uh, arguing in support of a, a quantitative impact study so that uh, the federal regulators could actually see what Basel would mean for the business of insurance. It's not a good fit. Um, but I, I do agree with Jeremiah's remarks that, you know, no capital regime is perfect nor static. I mean, it evolves. That We see that in the state risk-based capital regime. So... Um, more work needs to be done as it relates to uh, the analysis of Basel and its impact on the business of insurance. Um, look, I think that's right. I mean, we've had sort of um, you know um, you know evolutionary views on uh, as, as Jeremiah partially laid out right on the on the idea of the concept of capital and the capital structure of uh, of these institutions and what's appropriate. 
for them. Um, it's they're not easy. Um, they're not easy questions. Part of that evolution was it's just simply on the whole whole idea of you know risk weighted versus not non risk weighting. Uh, where you know um, originally we did not think in terms of risk weighting. We evolved to uh, risk uh, risk weighting, and there are some critics out there who um, who today think we should. Um, uh, you know, and Brown Vitter and others who think we should move away from um, risk weighting. Um, you know, I, I personally think they're they're wrong. I think uh, risk weighting is um, the it's um, is definitely the is the wisest um, way to go um, for a lot of reasons, and that does not, and not because we've always gotten it right in the past, and not that we're necessarily getting it. Right now, but I think we have to continue to move on that evolutionary continuum, continuum to perfecting how we think about um, how these institutions uh, calculate and account for uh, and account for risk. And I do think that um, we can get smarter uh, as we go. I think we are smarter to, even despite the crisis. Uh, we've learned so much from uh, from the crisis. And um, and I and I think we do have a much better, you know, understanding of what risk is. Um, and you know, you cannot. Um, it, it's very hard to disaggregate it from, you know, new regulatory regimes and from the expected actions of authorities. That's really the hardest thing. And I'll just just give you, you know, just one one small anecdotal story. It was on the, on the weekend of. Um, of uh, the Lehman brother, the Lehman, the famous you know meetings up in New York, and Lehman brother was going to file for bankruptcy, and and we were aware of AIG, and and um, and I was talking to a friend at at a large, I was I was in the White House at the time, and talking to a friend on a Saturday morning, um, who was up in New York, and called to ask like what's going on, right? And I said, well, I can't tell you stuff, but you can tell me stuff, you know, so. <laughs> So I said, uh, I said, first of all, I said, what are you, I said, what are you all doing up? You know, and she was in a, you know, one of large uh, Wall Street banks. I said, what, I said, what are you doing? I said, I said, every bank up here has their back offices up here, and um, and I said, well, but what are you doing? And she said, well, we're we're all trying to determine um, uh, our counterparty risk. You know, it's like wow, like on that like that weekend in September. Like now, like now, you're trying to figure out your counterparty risk, right? Well, that's going on every day in in institutions now. You know, I mean, they're really all institutions and regulators are spending a lot of time thinking about uh, counterparty risk in ways they did not do before. That's just one small, um, you know, you know, lesson learned, and there and there's a lot of that going on. So I think we can I think we can get better at it. I think we can perfect the way we think about not perfect, be, be more perfect in the way we think about um, about risk and how we account for it. Um, in terms of capital, I think we spend a lot way too much time talking about capital, not not so much time talking about liquidity, but we probably should probably should do that at some point too. Okay, so then I'm just going to ask a general question. So given everything that we've said here, what in the view of each of the panelists is the biggest source of systemic risk going forward? I'm asking you to look in your crystal ball. In <laughs> yeah, any, in the banking, insurance, financial <laughs> services generally, anything to do with money? <laughs> I, don't, you know, I don't know if, um, if, if you guys don't mind me just sort of jumping in while you think of smarter answers than mine. <laughs> um, 
you know, look, I think by its very nature, you don't, you don't, you don't really know. I mean, when you think, when you think about the last crisis, and you know, you always, you don't always want to fight the last wars, but you know, there, there probably couldn't have been a more perfect um, asset class to create a perfect storm than, you know, than residential um, mortgages and and the securitization of them. Um, you know, maybe some other things that could have a similar impact in creating, you know, global systemic risk might include, like, you know, I don't know, will, um, I don't think this is going to happen, but, you know, um, a major U.S. city files for bankruptcy, and <laughs> there are some questions about the treatment of creditors uh, in that bankruptcy and the knock-on effect of uh, the ratings of municipal bonds in the wake of that. Right? Now, I don't think the, I don't think there's anything going to happen there, but you know, municipal bonds are widely held and considered relatively safe uh, instruments by lots of uh, institutions uh, here and around the world. And so, you know, why not municipal securities? Right? Again, I don't think that's going to happen, but um, it's it would take that to me. It would take that kind of um, uh, asset class or instrument that could uh, create real global systemic risk. It's a hard question to answer if you just roll back, you know, the last 12 years or so and look at uh, some of the government responses or actions prior to 2008. Uh, I would say there are a number of people in policy in Washington that looked at the GSEs and said that's a big risk. Uh, the prior administration, I think, starting in... 2002 and the uh, OMB budget. I mean, but yeah, for a long yeah, time. But, and, saying, and, but even before you can go and, back to and, uh, when Gary Gensler was Under Secretary of Treasury in 1999, he gave a speech on on some of the risks, and um, nothing really happened. Uh, so there were p people warning about the risks of GSEs and some attempts to do something about it, but the policy response was not there. On the flip side, uh, it was pretty clear that the, the official sector missed other risks in housing leading up to 2008. And so, you know, on housing, uh, some right and a, a big miss. And uh, the question in my mind is when you have, in both those cases, you had, uh, I think, too great of a role for Washington in in the markets and the policy space, and nothing we've done since the crisis, in, in my mind, has really taken us back. I mean, the safety net, as I mentioned earlier, has gotten bigger. Mm -hmm. uh, there are attempts to uh, quantify this, and the Richmond Fed has a study that they do every so often, and I, I can't remember the number, but I think it's you know almost doubled from where they thought it uh, was prior to the crisis, uh, but it's a significant amount of involvement for the government in, in financial services. And so what, what's that mean? The government now has to be a better predictor of risk if we're going to fund effectively more parts of the financial system. You better do a good job of regulating it, which means uh, you might not get it right and you might impact commerce or to its detriment or uh, you might not regulate it in the 
right calibration and something bad happens. So I think what you've done is put too much you. What what's happened is we've, we've put too much weight and responsibility on Washington because the the subsidy and the safety net has grown. I I think Jeremiah hit the nail on the head and and uh, it it really. You know, my magic eight ball doesn't have the answer. It's cloudy. Check back later. I, I think if we knew what the next crisis was going to be or what uh, it would likely be avoided, I think that Dodd-Frank does attempt to provide uh, that better monitoring mechanism. And, and I do have concern that the balance be struck uh, appropriately so it, it doesn't end up uh, harming the economy or particular firms or consumers uh, you know, the, I think we need to pay attention. It sounds like FSOC, FSOC has a perpetual sonar system in place and the pinging goes on to look for that risk. So nothing's static. You know, if a firm, you know, just because it's made X number of designations as of a particular date, it doesn't mean that it isn't scanning the horizon and seeing what it believes is generating systemic risk. And I think it needs to, to look at you know, particular activities and, and see if, if they're contributing to systemic risk as opposed to maybe whole, whole firms and just size. So it's, you know, really, uh, if, it, if it sharpens its, its, uh, its uh, radar over time to be more uh, precise, that would be helpful. If I could just weigh in on that too, because I mean, Jeremiah mentioned uh, like, you know, President's Working Group on Financial Markets, which when I was at, when I was at Treasury would, uh, would be in those meetings also. And, um, you know, and, and it wasn't fundamentally different from what really FSOC was intended to do, right? It just grew out of the, um, uh, I think, out of the Asian financial crisis and LTCM has run that right. period, right? That President's Working Group, I think that's right. Might have been a previous crisis, but I think that's. You um, out of the 88. Actually, it might have been. Crash. Actually, it was the eighty-seven. It was eighty-seven crash. That's right. And, uh, I think is when it and the, the G twenty finance ministers process started after the Asian Asian financial crisis. So like, we sort of create these structures to to look at, um, you know, to look at the world and and see what you can see and try to, um, you know, and try to do that. Try to anticipate, uh, you know, problems as uh, as best you can and. Um, you know, I, I actually, again, I actually do think we are, you know, we're getting closer to a you know better way of doing it, just in terms of the level of seriousness um, and the and elevating um, the uh, elevating the information. But at the end of the day, it's always going to come down to the decisions by a very small group of human beings who are looking at that information. And and the question is, the question will always come down to whether they have the courage to make the really, really tough decision in face of what may or may not be. It's easy once the crisis is happening. You just go and start doing stuff. You know, um, It's when it looks like it, something looks concerning and, uh, and, and could be um, and you know, it could be a, it could be a crisis, and and it could happen. Um, you know, across you know whether it could be sovereign debt, it could be, you know, it could be a commodity, um, it could be you know real estate again, it could be um, you know municipal securities, it could be you know any of these things. One improvement uh, over the past, I think, though, is this, and and and, and Jeremiah, I don't know, you probably you, you know more about it than I do. I, I 
much certain is um, you know is the Office of Research, right? Which is intended to actually more aggressively and um, and quantitatively look at um, look at what institutions are doing, um, you know, here in the United States and globally, like never before. That doesn't mean they can't they can't screw up, but it is, I think, you know, t- trying to get at the the um, the work of what you know, say a major bank's, um, you know, risk office or, or, or research staff might be doing and looking at that, having the transparency to look at what um, institutions are doing across, you know, across the board, I think does help. That level of information really, really does help. <laughs> and, and, and FSOC, uh, where the you know, President's Working Group was largely a staff-driven um, Effort, I think, is a. I, I do think I've saw it. You know, is probably elevated in a way that you sort of force decision makers to make decisions when they're presented with what is hopefully better, inf, you know, information. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, I think we've got about fifteen minutes left, so I want to start opening up to questions. If you could please wait to be called on. Uh, wait for the microphone uh, to get to you. Um, and then announce your name and affiliation, we'd be grateful. So, uh, lady in the purple. Thank you. My name is Leandra Bernstein, and I'm a writer with LPI. And honestly, I find it very difficult to believe that you're all experts, you're obviously very intelligent, but there's still a denial uh, of what will happen when Dodd-Frank orderly liquidation is triggered. Now, in the preamble of Dodd-Frank, it states that the main concern is financial stability. Uh, There was a G20, the Financial Stability Board, was created in 2009, and they worked to, to create what, Uh, a cross-border resolution authority uh, or cross-border resolution regimes. Now, those regimes were intended to uh, essentially to do what happened in Cyprus, to bail in based on uh, liquidating shareholders, uh, other other folks, which is called for in Dodd-Frank, and what that would mean if Dodd-Frank were triggered, if orderly liquidation were triggered in the United States, it's clear from what's written in the IMF uh, key attributes of resolution regimes in the FSB, agreed to by the G20, by the United States, that you would have something equivalent in the US to a bail-in, and that that would happen on the basis of financial stability. So I'd like to get your response because you're obviously all intelligent. Uh, I wrote a paper called How the United States Joined the, Resol- the Bail-In Regime, the International Bail-In Regime. So I, I'm positive that this isn't news to you. Yes, I thought we, when we were discussing the single point of entry, that was the that is the, the bail-in is another is another term for that. That, but Jeremiah, you can maybe address it. Well, I, I'd start with it this way: uh, uh, the FSB and the IMF and 
the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision and whatever other international body that people go and meet and agree to, that doesn't have necessarily a strong bearing on the facts as I look at them in my job. I'm bound by uh, U.S. law, by the duty to my office, and I'm going to look at the facts if we're ever in an unfortunate situation as to what I'm supposed to do under U.S. law. And I think global coordination is very important to have workings of a financial system and a global economy, but I have no uh, no doubt in my mind that if if the FSB says you need to bail somebody out, and I don't think that's the right thing to do, uh, and that's not what I'm required to do by law, then I'm not going to do that. So I don't feel bound at all by uh, what other people go and agree to, because I've never gone and agreed to any bailout. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that that's, uh, I, I, there are, there's a lot of activity, global coordination and cooperation is, is important. I'm not trying to discount that, but I do think that, uh, I don't understand the mindset that if someone has it, that because we agreed to some framework to work on problems, that that ties our hands into, into bailouts. That's not the way I, I look at the issue. And I, I, I hope I'm not in denial about that. Well, uh, title, and the, title I, it, does, does enable a, a foreign branch of one of these GCIFIs to, to basically uh, start the triggering. It's in Title II. Yeah, and I, I was trying in my remarks earlier to say I think more weight should be placed on Title I. There's a lot of discussion yeah. on Title II, and uh, I think that firms should be resolvable under the bankruptcy code as the law requires, and that if, if we get to a Title II situation in this country, that means that for some reason the firm is not uh, does not have a credible plan or is not orderly under the bankruptcy law and or can't be resolved or, in an orderly way under the bankruptcy law. And then I think that that puts a, a very serious question to policymakers and the firms to say, how did you get to this point? So I, I look at Title I and bankruptcy in my mind as the path we need to work towards. The idea that uh, the, the bailout is, is coming in my mind is, is not not a notion that I accept. Okay, well, it's okay sorry, I'm um, to interrupt. Can we just give our um, uh, can we give our other panelists a chance to say anything? Do you have any further? Yeah, I was just, just very, very quickly. I, 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 I agree that go to Title II is the um, is the um, um, unlikeliest of uh, of outcomes. I think I do think that we really agree with Jeremiah so much on this that we really need to be primarily having a Title I. Uh, conversation. I think a, a lot has to really go bad in a lot of different ways to get uh, to get to to Title II, and it's 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 really where we need to be. Um, second is um, I think comparing. Uh, I, I think um, as I've said earlier, the, the international uh, coordination on this is is absolutely critical because what we're really really talking about are uh, the operations of uh, of global universal. Banks more than anything else, um, and I am a, a believer that we need to um, not hobble, but actually find ways to allow global universal banks to uh, to operate. I think it's what customers and the global economy require. So I'm a, I'm a, I say this as a very strong advocate for the not just the 
um, allowance, but the need for global universal banks that are doing lots of things for large globally active customers in a world where the need, the demand for, for uh, credit um, and, and intermediation is growing exponentially. Uh, that I think we're entering sort of a super cycle for the need, of, need, of, uh, need for these institutions. I don't really want to hobble them. Um, third is, though, you, you called me an expert, and I just want to stipulate that I only consider myself an expert on the appropriate use of the Pittsburgh Pirates pitching staff mm -hmm. and nothing more. <laughs> Thank I you. Can't, I can't add too much more to that. I, you've read the statute uh, very closely. I think we certainly, uh, from the private sector point of view, were removed from the bail-in tools. So if that decision were to be made, it, it would rest elsewhere. And, and I think Congress would have a lot to say about what actions were taken if, if we were in the midst of another crisis. So there's that element as well. Okay. Are there um, other questions? Gentlemen at the back. Thanks. I'm Terry Freeman with the uh, Public Eyes Risk Forum. And I have kind of a question, more of a concern, the use of the term systemic risk. And I think it gets confused a lot in people's minds with danger, risk, danger. And the idea of systemic risk being something that can be managed, I would suggest that the very act of trying to manage risk into the future is as you tried to uh, wrestle with earlier the question, well, what will be the next big event? You don't know. Mm -hmm. Risk is the ability to respond to the environment. And you can put controls in place that will act on things that are known. Risk is not known. A danger might be known. The danger of a toxic chemical ending up in a river is known, and you can have a control that says, don't put it in a river. Um, another example, you can. Uh, uh, sorry, can you can you keep it a little bit shorter? We're we're getting close on time, and and just give a, a question to the panel if if you can. The the question is, why do you use the term systemic risk? Because it really has no meaning. It, it's just a word that gets people confused, and then you end up in a situation like two thousand eight, where geez, how did we get here? Well, I'll leave it to the people who were involved in, in the time, Jeremiah. Uh, well, I, I didn't have any part in drafting the <laughs> law them. on systemic risk, and I'm, I, I can't say for sure. I've never used the term, but it's not a term that I would use uh, purposely. And as I think I tried to say earlier, I am concerned that it's difficult for Washington to predict all the risks and to the extent we have a bigger financial system coming out of Washington, then uh, th that is a risk. <laughs> I think, um, you know, so there's, um, there, are, there, there are ways to think about this. I don't, I'm, not, I'm trying not going to go, try not to go too long for once on <laughs> my answer, but, uh, but there are the two ways to think about this. That, that um, you know, when we were back in government, I, I wish I had like a dollar for every t everyone who told me that um, you know that yes, you know the housing downturn is a problem. Um, it's going to have um, it probably, you know, we're, we're probably in recession or you know, very likely we'll, we'll have uh, be be uh, recessionary. Um, you know, obviously 
you know, prices are collapsing in a lot of markets, but these are localized markets. And um, so, uh, and, and we're really talking about, you know, failure of, of subprime mortgages, which we all knew were unsustainable. You know, I mean, every, we all watch the same commercials on TV late at night, right, <laughs> where you can get these, um, these mortgages and anybody with, you know, half a brain will look at that and say, well, that's not sustainable in this system because, you know, who's going to buy those mortgages, right? Because they're, you, they're not priced, right? You can't, you have a hard time, how do you price them? Uh, how do you price something like that, right? Well, and I had a lot of guys who t- said, you know, economists who said, you know, so that's subprime mortgages, you know, it's only about 4% of originations, and we're only talking about 20% of that 4% that are failing, right? So regional problem could, you know, lead to an economic downturn, but no one really fully understood that it actually was because of a misunderstanding of how, um, a misunderstanding of structured finance, a misunderstanding of the um, distribution of residential mortgages and how they were and how they were uh, sold, uh, that this was in fact systemic. It was going to be the failure of an asset class um, that would on which you know large structures throughout the economy depended for. Um, for the you know distribution of capital and, and 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 even the pricing of lots of other kinds of risk, I would say that that was systemic. It was clearly systemic. Um, now, at the same time, people were saying, "Well, what about commercial, um, you know, mortgage-backed securities?" And you know, there, there were famous predictions about municipal uh, securities, none of which really panned out, right, in the same way to become systemic, uh, systemic. Threats, but residential mortgages did, and I would say that was systemic. And so I think that's a fair use of, of the phrase. Second, though, is I remember back in in two thousand two, um, two thousand one and two thousand two, dealing every day with the Argentine financial crisis, and at that time, everyone who looked at the Argentine financial crisis said, um, contagion. We're going to see contagion. It's going to affect all other emerging market countries when Argentina fails. And um, because their experience had been, um, you know, the Latin American, you know, uh, debt crisis of the 80s or the Asian financial crisis, Russian default of the late 1990s and says that everyone said, this is what will happen next. And in fact, we did not see uh, contagion after the Argentine default in, uh, in 2002. And I think part of that was because market participants got a lot smarter in thinking about contagion, that why should, why should you know, Turkish um, debt be downgraded because of right. Argentina, right? And so, there, and so that wasn't systemic at the end of the day, but a lot of people thought about it in systemic terms. Okay, that's it. Uh, Jim? I think my colleagues have described it pretty well. You know, it's a complex conversation. It never ends when you just say systemic risk. It talks, you, you inevitably get into a conversation about contagion, interconnectedness, substitutability, these more, you know, subjective elements that you need to evaluate to say, you know, you could choose whatever word you want, I think, but it's a question of 
is the risk such that it has those features that would uh, lead to a bigger impact than you know than otherwise would be the case or otherwise is the case not all risk is created equal you know MetLife sells life insurance policies we inherently assume that risk that you hopefully will live a hundred years and have a long healthy life but if you leave this seminar today and happen to uh, get run over crossing the street we would pay your life insurance proceeds. We're able to manage that risk, you know, by uh, pooling it with a large population who's not likely to experience that at the same time. But so not all risk is bad, but to your point, it's a very complex conversation. Okay. Yeah. And of course, uh, banking is the business of managing risk. So we can't exclude it from the, from the system without, without uh, killing the business. I think that's, uh, we've sort of run out of time. Uh, we will have a, a 10 or 15 minute break now, and then the next panel will begin at 12.